Welcome back to Mastering Retail, a podcast brought to you by Flywheel Digital. You're listening to This Month Above the Fold, a new monthly series on our Mastering Retail feed where one of our digital commerce experts covers the three most important stories each month. And this is your June 2023 recap. I'm Emma Irwin, Senior Editor and Specialist at Flywheel. And I have, again, Patrick Miller here, co-founder and co-president of Flywheel Digital. Patrick, how have you been? Great. Thanks so much for having me on. Looking forward to the, uh, the discussion today. Today, we're talking about Jason Del Rey's new book, Winner Sells All. We're talking about Amazon excluding Timu from competitive price checks and some updates on the 3 p seller landscape with the introduction of the Inform Act. And so I'd love to start with last week, our friend journalist Jason Del Rey's newest book, Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets was released to the public. So we've both done our due diligence and have read the book so we can have a bit of a book club session here. And Jason primarily looked at all of the big moves and advancements that Amazon and Walmart have made or done over the last 20 years or so. But can you give me some of your main takeaways from reading the book? Yeah. So enjoyable, quick read. And what I like most about it, just the how clinical it was and, you know, just the number of quotations that Jason was able to get via direct sourcing. And as I read the book, what I found most interesting was Doug McMillan, just like, you know, his personal story, just his servant leadership, how he shows up, how he leads and, and has transformed that organization, how he is self-critical and how he is, you know, so thoughtful in his approaches. I just came across after reading the book, just really impressed by him and how he's led that organization through a lot of change. So fascinating look with him. You know, I think with both companies moves into healthcare fascinating and just, you know, in both from an organic perspective as well as an inorganic perspective, battle over pill pack and that sort of stuff in, you know, sort of interesting back and forth. But to me, sort of as both those companies see healthcare as such a strategic imperative and how both are sort of, you know, thinking through sort of how do they use their organic assets, whether that's the stores at, at Walmart or Amazon creating care for their colleagues and how each is approaching, you know, I found fascinating and where, you know, obviously it's a market that is is monstrous, complicated, you know, and, and, and as a customer, I find incredibly frustrating. And so it might be in full disclosure, my wife is a pathologist. So I get to hear about like how stuff works or doesn't work, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, so I, I think both of them entering in that space is, is ultimately could be a really positive thing. I was a little surprised, no, nothing around the ads business or not much around either of the ads businesses, but near and dear to my heart, but that's okay. We'll forgive them. And I also thought really interesting of the Many of the early supply chain leaders and how they bounced around to the different companies, why they moved and why not. You know, those folks, they're they're sort of the unacknowledged legislators of the e-commerce world. And as they created the foundations for the various networks and how both Walmart and Amazon get products to customers, I found fascinating uh, their learnings and what were shared and, and how people went from one company to the other. In your key takeaways, because I also sourced my own key takeaways, but I'm proud of myself, but also disappointed that you just already went through most of them. But <laughs> well, I'm glad we're on the same page. I'm so glad. But what yeah. I miss? What I miss? What, where, do, where do you disagree? Disagree, not necessarily, but this more goes into something I learned because I didn't know a ton about Jet.com. Like I knew it existed, but never visited the site. I remember when I was in college, some girl in my program got a job at Jet.com and I was like, oh, maybe I should look into that. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't. But I didn't really know anything about how that site worked. And then I knew of Mark Laurie, but it was really interesting to actually get the foundations of how that one 
how that site worked and how it kind of helped build Walmart's e-commerce or gave them some kind of start. Yeah, I was all right. So I already had gray hair by then, so I was <laughs> closer. <laughs> so that one was less on it was less interesting to me just because I lived through it and I had worked with Jet, you know, as as, as well as Quidzy pre-acquisition on both of them. So yeah, those jived with my experiences with both of them. So it was less interesting to me just because I I lived it, but uh, or at least from the cheap seats. But I thought the reporting was good. Was there anything mentioned in the book that you didn't already know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the M&A stuff and sort of the intricacies there certainly didn't know. Earlier Walmart stuff didn't know. You know, and, and I sort of looked at it as a a bridge between Sam Walton's autobiography and Brad Stone's work. And so I thought it was actually a, a great way to bridge those two. And especially the quotations he was able to get, just really impressive and just pulling them together. And, and it allows it, the quotations allow the reader to hear directly from the sources as opposed to paraphrasing. And and I just appreciated his approach there. And as you said, Emma, like being able to then stitch that into a story, really well done and, and certainly worth reading. And who is this book the most relevant for? Who should read this? Oh, I think anybody touching anybody in e-commerce, anybody touching Walmart or Amazon, certainly worth a read. And you know, you can knock it out in a day. In your opinion, will there ever be a winner that sells all? No. Retail is inherently fragmented, and it's why you would look at it, especially on a global scale, there will never be total consolidation here. So they will, Walmart may be dominant in parts of middle America, Amazon may be dominant in parts of e-commerce, but the total addressable market of retail, neither of them have at a mass level, you know, both are actually single digit. So especially when you look at it at a global level. So uh, so I disagree with the title, I suppose, but it's a, you know, these are large competitive businesses, you know, that are fighting for share every day, not just against each other, but against lots of other competitors. And it, when you look at it, especially when you start thinking about China, neither is anywhere close to all. Let's move into our Timu story, which is an article that was released that stated that Amazon is excluding new competitor Timu, which is a fast-growing Chinese-owned marketplace in the U.S. for anyone who doesn't maybe know, from its pricing algorithm because the site doesn't meet its standards of a fair pricing policy. So why is Amazon doing this? When Amazon looks, in most cases, to be a fast follower, and so they want to see where others price, they consider to be image competitors, so similar to them, and then they will then match price there. And, and they're able to do arithmetic, count sheets of toilet paper, and number of pills, et cetera. You know, sort of the challenge brands have is it either road slope and variance in, in margin by class of trade, but, you know, Amazon sees it sort of as, as good for their customer experience. And so... With Timu, you, you you have this, you know, sort of a marketplace that's, you know, quickly coming to the States, growing rapidly. But I think of it as sort of it's asking existential questions around what is a brand. And it's asking questions around counterfeit and IP. Where should Amazon match? And so many of these are, you know, direct listing from, you know, China sellers. And so how does Amazon match these? And so, you know, I think that's one, a really, really big question. And then two, it's sort of like, well, if it's just a, a bit of a bizarre, is it even worth, you know, matching and, and what to match and how to match. And so in my mind, as these are, these are all products, not brands. And, you know, as they become brands, it could be more interesting and Amazon may decide to match there. Right now, it's sort of a too much of a bizarre and not enough of, of a retail. And is there any risk to Amazon taking this stance for Amazon? Yes, customers, if it grows and customers go there and then they, you know, sort of and they're losing share, absolutely there's a risk, but they can't match everybody all the time. And so, like, I think about like, 
Ollie's bargain basement or, you know, sort of sort of weird places where products end of life products go, you know, something like a TJ Maxx, you know, for example, where it's like, yeah, it's, Amazon's not matching them. One, it's hard because, you know, they don't have a, a great online listing and, and nor do they want to. It's by design. And so, yeah, they don't match everything. They have to be selective. And, and you know, we'll see over time and sort of what does Timu become and is it really worth matching? And it's the same thing with Shein. And, and when you look at Shein and sort of who's listing there, again, these are products that are being listed, but Shein has all of a sudden become perhaps the largest fashion retailer, you know, in the country. And so Amazon has to have ways to match here, but it's, you know, this, this interesting question of, well, what are they matching and how do you do the lookup and how do you create a like for like catalog wise? And, or does Amazon sort of take the opposite approach and, well, how do they source directly from the China sellers and create sort of their own marketplace? And, and that's sort of my expectation is what they would do is where they see that these sites are getting traction. Why is that? Amazon's going to have more eyeballs and typically higher conversion rate. So how do they get those China sellers to list directly on Amazon and then circumnavigate, you know, sort of the challenge? For sure. And that kind of leads me into that next question of just we're seeing in the U.S. more and more of these Chinese marketplaces kind of popping up and sort of bypassing Amazon. But why is that happening? And what do you see as the or foresee as the future of that landscape? Sure. So the U.S. and many Western countries decided 20, 30 years ago, post-NAFTA especially, of moving many manufacturing jobs you know, from the States to overseas and, and China being the principal destination there. And so you then have various categories that much of the manufacturing you know, is done in China. And so there's an interesting question of like, well, who is the brand? What is the brand? And you have certain, certain brands that are, they own the factories in China. Others, you know, where they outsource that to someone and others that they outsource that to numerous, you know, factories, numerous partners and still own the sort of overarching IP on top of that. Apple is probably the best example there. But on more simplistic manufacturing, garden spades, kitchen spatulas, et cetera, well, what's the difference between the China product and product that the brand in the States is making? And I don't mean by making as they're actually manufacturing it, but they're putting their logo on it. And so to me, this is actually more of a disintermediation, you know, of the U.S.-based marketing manager. And instead, it's the China factory owners saying, hey, we're going to become a seller, which is really a bridge to, hey, we're going to become a brand. And so if you look at sort of the number of trademark filed in the in, in the U.S. over the past seven, eight years, you know, it's an exponential increase as these factory owners start to become brand builders. And so one of the paths to do that is Amazon, but there's also... She and you know, Timu Ali's had a, a number of efforts here to list these directly. And, you know, some of these may become brands and maybe not. Anchor is oftentimes, you know, held up as a good example there. So, you know, I expect to sort of see more and more of these. Uh, these are also sort of second order effects of sort of the cheap capital that before interest rates rose, uh, creating a two-sided marketplace is, is not for the undercapitalized. And I think there's also a big question around like, if I'm a brand, the age old question, when should I be a 3P? When should I be a 1P? And so I think about that, you know, sort of in the sense of a lot of brands hate the ABN process, but I look at it like, well, at least you got a chance. 3P side, they press a button. And I also look at it like, well, where does Amazon or any other retailer make more money? Well, the 3P side. Well, if they're making more money and it's the same product, well, then who's making less money if it's the same price? So that's oftentimes the brands. And so to me, it's solving on the 3P, 1P side is really looking at sort of what are the, the symptoms I'm trying to cure? What is the best solve for that? And sometimes it might be 3P. 
Sometimes it's one thing. Sometimes it's fixing diversion or on our you know last episode, you know, we talked about shrink. These are all related and, and much more nuanced than just a binary 1P3P conversation. Talking about Edgewater's report on Q2 for Amazon. And so they recently, well, they clearly launched the report looking at Q2 and a section that caught my eye had to do with that changing 3P landscape in the US and Edgewater stating that they believe that 3P drove the bulk of Amazon's growth this quarter, stating that brands are feeling those profitability pressures from Amazon, which has led to that shift from 1P to 3P for many. But can you kind of break down the short and long-term impact of this? Specifically on Inform, I think it's a really good thing. Identity and transparency is paramount for chain of custody and trust in what the goods are. And so the more that is done to help the end customer understand who they are purchasing from, the better. And so, you know, so this may cause some short-term pain as some sellers fail to comply, and it might shrink down some of selection. But any legit seller should be able to fill out a form pretty easily and provide identification. So to me, if this ends up decreasing counterfeit, decreasing diversion, that's a good thing. And figuring out sort of in a tighter way, what does chain of custody actually look like and who are you actually buying from? I think that's ultimately a really, really good thing. And you mentioned the Inform Act, which so if anyone is unfamiliar, they don't have to go off and look at what this is. But as of June 27th, is a government bill in the U.S. that's going to require online marketplaces to collect, verify, and disclose certain information from high-volume third-party sellers. And it's really basic information that this bill is asking for sellers to provide. But Edgewater kind of had these thoughts on how Amazon is going to like strategically implement this across the board. And there was a line in there that Amazon may be trying to, quote, call the herd, unquote, of 3P sellers focusing on the 20% who make up 80% of sales. Is this kind of in line with how you're thinking that Amazon will pursue this? And kind of what does this mean for the future? I doubt they're going to call the herd, but they will focus on the larger sellers and help them be successful. And so, but at the same time, they always want more selection. And so they don't want, you know, they want to make sure that, you know, sort of the the tail is vibrant and that they continue to offer the earth's, you know, largest selection. So I think it's actually, it's an and statement in the sense that the, you know, sort of the head sellers are driving the vast majority of GMV, but they want to incubate those tail sellers and, you know, help create jobs both in the States, Europe, and Asia to help them be successful. So this is sort of a, a step to driven by the US government to help legislate and mandate identity and and to you know and drive transparency. I, I think that's in everyone's best interest except for the bad actors and won't be sad to see them gone. Last question for you. Similar to last time I'm gonna have you predict the future, which no one likes doing, but I feel like it's better this time because we know what's coming in July, which is Prime Day. So at least we get to narrow it down a little bit. But like, what are your spidey senses giving you for how Prime Day is going to turn out this year? So my prediction is that the, you know, the much of Prime Day success is actually going to be driven by the Supreme Court actions over the next couple of days. And that's specifically looking at the $400 billion that the Biden administration, you know, had dedicated towards a student loan uh, forgiveness. 
if the Supreme Court allows that to continue, uh, have a positive impact from a monetary perspective across you know, about 40 million Americans. So if the Biden administration proposal goes through, you know, folks will have more discretionary income, uh, which is then going to drive success on Prime Day. If the Supreme Court rules, you know, that, you know, this is illegal, then that's going to have a negative impact because the the news will be saying that all of a sudden 40 million Americans are going to have to pay a whole lot more. And then that's going to clamp down on discretionary spending going forward. So that to me will be a huge tell as far as the success of Prime Day. And we should know in probably this Thursday. Interesting. And that's it for this month's e-commerce news. Tune in next month for our July recap and be sure to share this episode if you enjoyed it. I'm Emma Irwin, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.